0: You're listening to the Baby Dust Fertility Podcast, and I'm your host, Hannah Bowers. Now,
1: on to the show.
0: This podcast is sponsored by The Fertility Roadmap, your guide to optimizing conception. This self-based course teaches you everything you need to know to feel confident on your conception journey. Over six modules, you'll gain in-depth knowledge on hormones, how to track and confirm ovulation, when to take a pregnancy test, and strategic lifestyle shifts that are proven to enhance fertility. You'll also gain access to an exclusive community, monthly Q&As, and bonus downloads. Enroll today for just $59.97 at blissberrywellness.com. Welcome back to the Baby Dust Fertility Podcast. I hope that you've just had a great start to your day this episode. I'm so excited just for the topic we're going to discuss. Um, But before we get to that, I want to introduce our guest. We are honored to have Danielle with us today. She is a board certified adult uh, nurse practitioner. She's also certified with the Institute for Functional Medicine, which if you've been in our community for a while, you've been listening to the podcast, you know that IFM is one of the practitioner lists that I always recommend looking on if you are looking for a practitioner. Um, So welcome, Danielle. Thank you for taking the time time to be with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Hannah.
0: So, you know, one of my favorite questions to start off with is really straightforward. How did you land in fertility? What led you to this space?
1: Yes, good question. So I actually struggled with infertility myself and um, not a road that I thought I would go down, but nonetheless, one that I think has um, brought a lot of um, options to me. So I was a nurse practitioner, I graduated in uh, 2014, uh, working in a conventional medicine office. Um, At that time, I was trying to conceive and could not. So um, frustrated I was because I had just gone through, you know, undergrad, and then gotten my graduate degree. And so, you know, seven years of schooling later, I thought that I should be able to heal myself and I could not. So um, I tried to heal myself, you know, just with what I knew from a conventional standpoint. Nothing was working. Years had gone by. Ultimately, I ended up seeing a um, REI, and um, we did actually uh, conceive. With we tried clomid, which didn't work, and then uh, gonadotropin injections did work. Unfortunately, that cycle ended in a loss. It was 23-week pregnancy oh, loss. Wow. So yeah. sorry. Thank you. Yeah. It was a very traumatic experience, of course, as you can imagine. But um, it actually opened my eyes a little bit. Um, it made me almost question, you know, of course, why did this happen? And and I think a lot of women do that when they when they have a loss. But it actually made me question my career, and mm-hmm. it made me want to. Find a way to um, access fertility care to women that were like me, that were looking for different options, that were trying to um, improve their fertility from a more holistic or natural way. Um, of course, you know, having an REI is amazing and absolutely needed in some cases, but also to kind of work next to an REI to complement their therapies. And so I could not find another person like myself in my area. So I studied and got certified and became that person.
0: Mm, That's amazing. Well, I, I know the journey to get there sounds like it was difficult and heartbreaking, but, Mm -hmm. um, but to have that experience coming into working with women with fertility is just so invaluable.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I did happy ending. I did go on to conceive naturally twice, oh, and that's so wonderful. yeah. So thank you. I do have two children that uh, I feel like came out of you know something that was ugly and very sad and hard. But mm. um, for me, I got a good ending.
0: Mm, yeah, and that's that's the exciting part of you know thank getting you. to see that joy and yes. coming through on the other side. So I, I'm just so thrilled with that. Um, having been through our own experience, we we had an early loss at nine weeks. Uh, but but to come back from that, it's just um, there's a unique joy. It's hard to explain.
1: it is absolutely.
0: Well, today I kind of want to pick your brain on a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart um, and it's hypothalamic amenorrhea. I believe I'm saying that right, correct?
1: Yes, you are.
0: (laughs) Good. I always have this fear in the back of my head that I might be mispronouncing some of those uh, larger diagnoses, Um, but do you mind just kind of starting us off, telling us about it and and maybe sharing about your own personal experience?
1: Oh yes, absolutely. So what is hypothalamic amenorrhea? It's also known as, um, in some of the the REI world, um, hypothalamic hypogonadism, mm-hmm. um, which just basically means under functioning hypothalamus, under functioning gonads, ovaries, and then also relative energy deficiency in sport, or REDS. And so um, that all essentially means that. Our brain, the hypothalamus is not sending the signal to the over, I'm sorry, the pituitary to release the stimulating hormones, the follicle stimulating hormone, the luteinizing hormone, which then reaches the ovary to tell the ovary to start growing follicles and essentially developing eggs. And so that connection, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis is super important, but in hypothalamic amenorrhea, something is going on where the brain hypothalamus is not communicating to the pituitary to tell the pituitary to have the ovaries do their job. It's almost kind of like it's severed. There's some disconnect. Mm. And so um, that is essentially, you know, kind of the, um, foundation of hypothalamic amenorrhea. Now with me, my personal story, I actually was, I had it was a confusion of whether I had PCOS or hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is why I'm somewhat passionate about hypothalamic amenorrhea. I was diagnosed several times by GYNs, three different GYNs that I had PCOS, and um, I was treating it as PCOS. Now, the problem is hypothalamic amenorrhea can be very different from PCOS. They can have similarities and they can blend together. And it's kind of like this gray mucky area of which one is it, but they can also be uh, starkly different. And at the time, you know, back in 2014, there wasn't as much information available. So I feel like I was treating it. Um, very opposite of what I should have been had I known mm. I had hypothalamic amenorrhea. It wasn't until I saw the REI that I was properly diagnosed. Um, and so that's why I'm very passionate about you know the topic
0: Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I've read from other, um, other providers who are also passionate that it can be difficult to differentiate. Mm -hmm. Um, do you find that, you know, I know in my personal experience walking in the door at OBGYNs, they were just ready to slap the PCOS label on without really evaluating external factors, Mm -hmm. um, which I shared outside of this episode, eating a lot has been a huge factor in our journey. Um, and so Mm -hmm. I, I always wonder Do you see that regularly that because PCOS does tend to be more common, uh, at least commonly diagnosed, that that's why maybe some cases get swept under the rug a little bit, or not necessarily that, that's the wrong, but just missed?
1: Yes, absolutely. I I think that um, because PCOS is so popular and common, um, and then of course we have this, you know, quote unquote, lean PCOS. Uh, diagnosis that's going around. I oftentimes in my clinical practice, I see women that come to me that have PCOS diagnosed from another provider, and they were told that it's the skinny or the lean type PCOS. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you know, after you know digging and you know additional lab testing, or even just looking through a different lens, or maybe even a simple you know Provera challenge or something of that nature, it's more looking like a hypothalamic amenorrhea picture to me. And sometimes, you know, we have to get second and third opinions, you know, before we can, you know, really get to um, the actual diagnosis. But I see that a lot. And um, I think in our society, women in general, you know, just with social media and and even other media outlets, we're kind of forced to look at ourselves in a certain light. And we want to look a certain way. We want to, um, you know, be physically active or maybe, um, whether if we're an athlete to be able to compete at a certain level. So we have high expectations on ourselves and and I think a lot of times we feel like we need to be smaller, we need to eat less, we need to exercise more. and we might not see ourselves as anorexic or have an eating disorder at all. It might just we might just think, well, you know this is what I have to do to be healthy. And mm-hmm. for me, I thought, that was healthy. I thought, you know, eating a clean diet was healthy. I thought exercising a lot was healthy. I learned all these things in my, you know, schooling: um, diet and exercise. That's how you be healthy. And so, of course, if you have someone like me that has a little bit of a Type A personality, you could <laughs> take it yeah. to an extreme. And so, um, but it was also fun and rewarding, and I, I loved being an athlete. And so, I do think that um, hypothalamic amenorrhea can be missed because women see themselves as maybe just leading a healthy lifestyle when ultimately maybe it's not as healthy as they thought.
0: Mm, That makes sense. And, um, really it's almost like an entire paradigm shift of having to shift from believing not that eating salads are bad or exercising is bad, but seeing that more in a balanced place, especially in the context of fertility.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right.
0: So, you know, obviously, this is a problem We someone is trying to conceive, you know, if we're not getting our bodies to have optimal hormone function. Um, but what about the rest of someone's health? Are there other things that can be impacted or caused through this condition? Hey, friends, are you tired of taking your temperature every single morning? Well, I want to introduce you to the temp drop. The TempDrop is a wearable fertility monitor that automatically takes your basal body temperature. It's compatible with polycystic ovarian syndrome and can even be used postpartum, making this an extremely versatile device to have on hand. What's great about this monitor is that it will automatically sync with your cell phone app, making it simple to take your temperature and track it. Now you can save on the TempDrop if you head over to tempdrop.com and use the code BLISSBERRYWELLNESS.
1: Oh, sure. So um, do you mean low estrogen states in, in general? And yes, what it does? yes. The, the yeah. low
0: hormones and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, a woman that is experiencing a low estrogen state, which is very common for hypothalamic amenorrhea, first, they're going to have some symptoms. Obviously, the amenorrhea is huge, or it might not be overt amenorrhea. It might just be a consistently long cycle, longer than 45 days that, um, you know, seems to kind of come and go. And that also could be kind of why PCOS might be a diagnosis. But um, aside from that, mood swings and insomnia and fatigue and vaginal dryness and hunger, low sex drive, Hair loss, the headaches, those are so many symptoms that someone with a low estrogen state can have. And of course, you know, the issue of having a chronically low estrogen state, the biggest one, you know, that I think gets talked about the most is bone health and osteoporosis, Mm. um, osteopenia, so um, brittling of the bones. And that happens a lot in uh, women that have hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, more so than then I think one would imagine, Um, you know, you actually do have peak um, bone density at the age of 30, and then it does start to slowly decline after that. But in our 20s is when we're supposed to be kind of ramping up our bone density. And if we don't have a regular cycle, we're not getting that burst of estrogen, then we're really going to be lacking on that um, bone formation, which is critical. I mean, that has to literally carry us into our older age. So um, we're going to be stunting our growth at that point, Um, but also heart disease. So having um, estrogen um, with the receptors in our heart, it improves just our heart's functioning, the blood vessels, Mm -hmm. the elasticity. Um, Women that are chronically low in estrogen can be at higher risk for heart disease because of that. Um, also brain health. Um, there have been some studies that show women that are have lower estrogen states can be at higher risk for dementias and Alzheimer's and um, you know, brain diseases. Um, on a more less severe scale, um, but still severe, um, mood and neurotransmitters can be affected. So not having that estrogen. Estrogen um, plays a very tight role with a lot of our brain chemicals that make us happy, that give us motivation, that give us energy. And when we don't have that interplay, then we really can um, suffer from a mood standpoint. I talked about low libido already, um, but certainly that can be problematic, um, you know, for baby making, but also just for how we feel about ourselves and how we mm-hmm. connect to a partner. Um, and then some of the other things, maybe high cholesterol can be commonly seen. Mm, interesting. Um, very interesting. 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 And then inflammation. So, estrogen is super important um, with it ties uh, into our immune system and how our immune system responds. And um, if we have lower estrogen states, then we can be creating a lot more of these inflammatory cytokines that can create inflammation. And so, um, those are the things that I I generally see with women that have um, hypothalamic amenorrhea, but also just low estrogen states in general.
0: Mm, Well, it seems like, you know, a lot of those things you mentioned. You wouldn't naturally, unless you were well educated about it, wouldn't tie them back to being related to that low hormone
1: state. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think it's super important. This is why I, I think that fertility, obviously, is very important, but mm-hmm. to not look at it as a um, just a means to get pregnant and have a baby. That's super important to many of us as women and and people trying to grow families. But um, ultimately, you know, we. Biologically, we have a cycle for a reason, yes, to procreate, but also because it interplays with a lot of our um, biological systems as well. And it keeps us healthy, as I described with bone health and with heart and brain health. It's it's a huge interplay with all those systems. And if we're basically putting ourselves in lack for a better term, but menopause earlier than we should be, we're going to be missing out on all of those opportunities to really. Um, you know, grow and strengthen, you know, our um, resiliency of our organs.
0: Mm, Absolutely. So one of the things that I've seen come up, you know, in our community, we, we've seemed to be having a growing number of members who, who post saying I've just been diagnosed with the condition hypothalamic amenorrhea. I don't really know anything about it. Um, A lot of times there's not a lot of good information shared on like next steps. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like when you're trying to treat hypothalamic amenorrhea um, specifically from a functional medicine standpoint?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. So just kind of like a, before I go into functional medicine, the broad um, treatment recommendations by um, the Endocrinology Society, um, certainly trying to eat more calories um, is what they're going to tell you first to do. So um, they kind of see hypothalamic amenorrhea as um, a diagnosis of exclusion, so mm-hmm. they, you do want to diagnose or exclude the diagnoses before you actually say it's hypothalamic, malaria. but once you get there, um, the thought is that maybe someone got to this place because of under eating, just undernourishing in general, over-exercising, weight loss or chronic stress. So all of those factors um, together could um, throw off someone's um, hypothalamic, pituitary, ovarian axis. And so by eating more, um, I think generally the recommendation is Somewhere around 2,500 calories. The important part too is to make sure you're eating all the macronutrients: fats, mm-hmm. carbs, and proteins. Carbohydrates are are pretty important as well. I think it's a, a macronutrient that a lot of women try and skimp on sometimes, um, but trying to get um, enough of that, um, you know, is important. And I I don't like to make blanket statements on um, certain grams of certain macronutrients. It, kind of depends on the person. But I think generally, if you can shoot for, you know, 200 grams of carbs and above, that's kind of like a safe place. Um, So you're filling in that energy deficit. So you're eating more, you're exercising less. If you're exercising, Um, you're scaling that down. Um, You're trying to, um, you know, conserve your energy. Also, aside from just that physical energy deficit piece, there's a mind body piece as well. So Um, practicing stress reduction. Um, I actually do think that the endocrine society recommends um, the CBT cognitive behavioral therapy as well, which I think is pretty interesting and good. Mm -hmm. So um, that would be kind of like the basics. Now, from a functional medicine standpoint, um, and is it okay if I just kind of introduce what functional medicine is? Yeah, please do. Okay. Mm -hmm. So just as your listeners probably already know, but it's um, a model that's individualized, it's patient-centered, it's science-based, and it empowers patients and practitioners to work together. The focus is to address um, root causes and um, promoting optimal wellness. So within that, we use something called a functional medicine matrix, and it's a series of biological systems. We call them nodes. And there's... um, certain categories like uh, defense and repair, um, energy, biotransformation, elimination, um, transport, communication, structural assimilation. So there's all these different nodes. And what we're looking for um, primarily when we first are starting with somebody is, you know, what are um, these antecedents, these triggers and mediators that could be uh, causing someone to present in a certain way? So antecedents, do you have any genetic Predispositions. Do you have maybe family history? There actually are genetics that um, can cause someone to have a more sensitive hypothalamus. Actually, Mm. so um, and I don't have those in front of me, but um, I do have a list somewhere. But there are genes that you can test for to see if you are higher at risk for something like hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, just genetically. So if you have someone in your family maybe that had issues with that, then you know you're going to be more at risk. Um, You know also. Um, triggers like traumas or um, you know anything else that's significant that could maybe cause that or, um, again, like anorexia is the easy one to talk about, but again, it's not always anorexia. Um, mediators, which are things that are like perpetuating you know, the situation, like maybe a um, body image distortion, or maybe it's something else like leaky gut or inflammation or nutrient deficiencies that just keeps the cycle going. So we like to think about all of those. And we're trying to, um, you know, during our consultations with patients, we're asking all these questions and we're taking note of, maybe, you know, where some of these underlying root causes could be stemming from. So that's an important part is the collection of data. But um, we're also, you know, kind of looking at um, a lot of different laboratory diagnostics. So we first want to, of course, rule out, you know, thyroid disease, um, hyperlactin states, um, something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And, um, you know, assuming someone has had a pelvic exam and they don't have any malaria and tract abnormalities, like where maybe they're born without the uterus and that would be cause for amenorrhea. Um, Certainly hormone testing, so estrogen and testosterone, and um, we can test for progesterone, but assuming that someone's not ovulating, that's going to be low. Um, And then of course the FSH, the LH, um, you can learn a lot of information just from those basic labs. And again, with a functional medicine lens, you know, you're kind of looking at it um, in a more technical perspective. So um, for someone like me, if I'm looking at someone's FSH and LH, you know, um, if they're on the lower side, then that's definitely a key point of like, okay, if if those are extremely low, if the estradiol state's pretty low, that someone's more likely going to be hypothalamic amenorrhea versus a PCOS patient. Um, So you're looking at all these these data tools. And then for treatment, um, you know, it's going to be depending on Um, what you're finding, what you're gathering, and it's very individualized. But just kind of that as a basic, I really do love, um, in addition to all those hormone tests and other tests that I mentioned, um, you're going to also want to do stool testing and salivary cortisol testing um, just to kind of check for adrenal status and check for gut health. And so with treatment approaches, certainly you're going to be eating more, exercising less. But let's just say maybe someone has um, you know, a really you know, poor functioning adrenal system, like maybe they're, um, I don't want to say adrenal fatigue, because that's not really a great term, but adrenal dysfunction, that maybe they just need more support with their adrenals. So maybe we would support them, you know, depending on um, how that looks, maybe it could be herbs, maybe it could be just a Really good solid sleep routine, you know. Um, So, we really want to focus on um, some of the basics, but then also kind of layer on some of the more um, advanced tools. Um, And then it might also be certain foods to implement, like soy and flax and things like that, or mitochondria support, CoQ10. So, it's really um, hard to, you know, give a one blanket treatment for functional medicine, but that's kind of all the things that I'm looking at for treatment.
0: Yeah. I, I really appreciate this. One of the reasons why I love functional medicine is that, like you said, you can't just say, well, this is what we do and that's how we treat it. Um, cause I feel like a lot of times, especially in it, from a conventional perspective, that's, that's what's given as just a standard treatment. Um, and it doesn't work for a lot of women because it doesn't take into account their unique biochemistry and their unique situations and extenuating factors. Um, and I, I just think that's something that, I don't think it's a point I could drive home enough, just saying Mm -hmm. how valuable it is to just have a provider who is individually putting together a plan, which I imagine it can take time. It's not, it's not a, here's a 15 minute appointment and I'll hand you on your way. I mean, it it takes a little bit more effort, a little bit more knowledge, more ongoing education. So from your part as a practitioner, um, being intentional and passionate about learning these things. But um, I think it sounds like the end outcome ends up being better all the way around when it is tailored to
1: the unique need. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's really just kind of hard to give the blanket statement of mm. eat more, exercise less. There's <laughs> a lot more that oh, yeah. goes into it and a lot more testing. And um, one thing I do want to mention is I love chronobiology, which is mm. um, the focus on circadian rhythms. Mm. And I think that's super important because our, as um, you know, humans... Our um, appetite and our um, sleep cycles. It's all just on this 24 hour rotating schedule. And so um, I'm really big with my patients. This this could be blanket potentially a blanket (laughs) statement. I'm really big on sleep. I'm really big on um, creating that routine going to bed the same time every night, waking up the same time every morning, um, having the same you know ritual that you do so that you can get that good quality sleep and duration of sleep. And then I also really love morning sunlight. I love the idea mm-hmm. of getting outside if possible. If, you know, whether that's, I don't know where people are living, but if that's not doable, you could always get a little light box that um, you can put on when you're brushing your teeth to get yourself some light. The purpose of the light is that um, those UV rays will go through the eyes to the retina and it stimulates the hypothalamus and the pituitary mm-hmm. to actually secrete hormones and um you get a lot more um cortisol production in the morning which people might hear cortisol and say, Oh, I don't want, I don't want cortisol, but you do in the morning, because when you make all your cortisol in the morning, then you actually get a nice downward shift in the evening and then a spike of melatonin at night. So you want to train your body, you know, all of those, uh, how to sleep, how to wake up, how to you know, be in nature, just as we were intended to years and years ago. And that really can help to regulate the menstrual cycle.
0: Mm, Yeah. And that I, I think it's okay to make that blanket statement. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's so relevant to all of us just getting that, um, getting that in. And I love the recommendation for buying one of those UV light boxes to mimic it mm-hmm. at home. I know where mm-hmm. I live, we do not get a lot of sun. Um, I mean, I think, uh, our specific location in Ohio is, uh, it tends to be very cloudy. And so mm-hmm. you have to sometimes manufacture that sunlight when yeah. it, when you can't access it. And so it's a good reminder that, you know, uh, there are options if you are like me and don't always have that access.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. yeah.
0: But Danielle, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this topic. I appreciate you sharing your insight. Um, I, I know that I had told you before we hit record that hypothalamic amenorrhea is, is a topic that I see coming up more and more, but I also see that we, we don't have a lot of great resources to share with women. So I appreciate you taking the time to kind of break this down for us. If someone is listening, they are really intrigued about what it might look like to connect with you. Where can they do
1: that? Sure. So I love to post on Instagram. I I love to, um, be in that area. So, um, my handle is at vital.aspirations. And I do have a website, www.vitalaspirations.com as well. I'm also on Facebook at vital aspirations too.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll link that in the show notes. So anyone who's listening, check out everything that she has posted on Instagram. You're going to learn a lot. Um, but yes, you can find the information below and thank you for taking the time just to chat with us today. I've really enjoyed it
1: thank you so much for having me. It was such an honor.
0: Well, that wraps up today's episode of the baby dust fertility podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review with that. uh, That wraps up today's uh, discussion. And I look forward to being back with you here very soon with another episode. So bye for now. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and we'll give you a shout out in an upcoming episode.